Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's November 3rd. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got four briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, developments for you out of the Middle East this morning, including a very important speech by the terror group Hezbollah. It'll tell us whether this war will likely escalate to include inside the United States. Second, a very sober assessment this morning by Ukraine's top general, who's admitting that his country is stuck militarily and Russia is better positioned to win. Third, charitable foundations in the U.S. recently announced a $1 billion initiative to rebuild and expand local newspapers and TV stations. But the foundations involved in this suggest that there might be a political motivation to their initiative, ultimately to control you and your news. Finally, an update to last Friday's report on the horrible, just absolutely gut-wrenching shooting in Maine. There is a growing bipartisan movement, folks, to reconsider the closure of mental hospitals in America, with Donald Trump actually weighing in on this topic, so we'll talk about it. But before we get to all of that, let's get to our top stories of the morning. Three important updates for you on the war in the Middle East, folks. We start with the possibility that the war will spread today or over the weekend following a very important speech by the leader of the Iranian-backed terror group, Hezbollah. So here's what we know. The leader's name is Saeed Hassan Nasrallah, and he has so far been pretty quiet about the Hamas terror attacks just one month ago and what his group Hezbollah should do next. And that is the grave threat this morning, what Hezbollah will do. Indeed, he has just delivered a speech about his group's plans and intentions, although as of this moment, I'm still looking at the translations and parsing whether his typical anti-Israeli rhetoric will lead to actual action. Because if so, and depending on what that is, it could lead to a dramatic escalation of violence into Israel's north, up to and including a full-scale war. So that's what I will be watching for today and over the weekend for what, of course, comes next. But in the meantime, let's remind ourselves of the seriousness of this group and this threat. So what we know is that Iran provides Hezbollah with hundreds of millions of dollars annually, and they use that cash to do all sorts of terrible things to include building an arsenal of about 150,000 rockets. And that is far more than Hamas. In fact, it's enough to overwhelm Israel's defense systems called Iron Dome. Plus, Hezbollah has somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 fighters, although that number is contested. But the point is this. They've got a lot of men to throw at this fight if they want to wage that kind of fight full bore. And if they do, it will almost certainly provoke a massive response by Israel to the point The Israeli Defense Forces yesterday warned Hezbollah that it only has used about half of its air force so far in the Gaza Strip operations, with the other half of the air force easily discharged to the north to deal with Hezbollah and Lebanon as necessary. 
And that warning to Lebanon, in addition to Hezbollah, that's important. Because as listeners might not know, Lebanon has been ruled officially or covertly by Hezbollah for decades. Indeed, the average citizen who lives there is very fearful that Hezbollah is going to drag them back into a war with Israel, as they have done several times in decades gone by. But this time, it would be different. Because Lebanon is already very close to collapse because of corruption within the Lebanese government. And that is why people in that country are on a knife's edge this morning, hoping that Lebanon does not get dragged back into this fight once again. But no matter, if Hezbollah and Lebanon were to get involved more directly, it would dramatically increase the chance that we would have a much bigger and a much broader war throughout the Middle East than we do right now, not just in in Gaza or the West Bank. Plus, there is also a fear, ladies and gentlemen, that Hezbollah, if they declare an all-out war, it would spark deadly terror attacks all throughout the globe and also in the United States. Indeed, as I have briefed you on previously, Hezbollah has sleeper cells throughout this country, most likely concentrated in states like Michigan, California, Pennsylvania, and New York. In other words, this speech by Hezbollah's Nasrallah this morning, ladies and gentlemen, it is very important. It could mean that this war might come to our shores, and if so, very quickly. Now, for what it's worth, and to calm our nerves a bit, the U.S. intel uh, community says that that escalation globally is not likely, at least as of this morning. They are saying that Iran and its proxy fighters and terror groups like Hezbollah, they're actually quietly, discreetly trying to avoid a bigger, more broader war. So we'll see in very short order if America's spies are right on that or quite wrong. Next, out of the Middle East this morning, we have got an update on operations in the Gaza Strip. Israel continues to expand its ground operations and airstrikes in the north, encircling Gaza City now from three directions and cutting off that town from the south. Israeli defense forces have confirmed that their troops are on the ground in Gaza City, fighting in very close quarters. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said, quote, we are now at the height of the battle, end quote. Meanwhile, his chief of military engineers has confirmed that Israeli forces are encountering booby traps and mines of all kinds. Meanwhile, Israeli forces are also heavily targeting the Hamas tunnel networks that we've discussed. There are videos, in fact, of Hamas terrorists popping up from their tunnels, attacking Israeli positions and then retreating back into their underworld. As you would imagine, Israel then responds with pretty serious artillery or missile strikes. Now, as a reminder, down in those tunnels are both terrorists and hostages, over 200 still as of this morning. Plus, there is a whole lot of fuel. NBC News is reporting that Hamas is hoarding much of Gaza's remaining fuel, over 200,000 gallons, all throughout their tunnel network and all to power either its rockets or its generators. Those bring in fresh air and electricity to its tunnel systems. Of course, and just to to emphasize this fuel for the tunnels, that ultimately means less fuel for things like hospitals, bakeries, and water systems. Those are now failing this morning without that fuel. Hamas, by the way, is responding by saying that they're prioritizing the fuel for their war operations. Meanwhile, Hamas continues to prevent the Gazans from leaving those northern areas where all that fighting is the most dangerous this morning. To the point of the danger, Israel has twice struck a section of a refugee camp. Indeed, they did that earlier this week. Scores are dead from that strike. But some of the dead are from the surrounding buildings of the strike that actually collapsed because of all the tunnel networks underneath those buildings. Those collapsed when the missile landed. 
All in all, some pretty terrible stuff in the Gaza Strip this morning. I'll keep watching it. We'll talk about it next week. Bottom line, more to come. Finally this morning, news on this war that is a little bit closer to home and sadly how some Americans are choosing to respond. A Muslim leader in the state of Maryland has told his community that the terror attacks on Israel were, quote, a great victory, end quote. His name is Imam Mahmoud Adel Hadi. He is the spiritual leader of the Maryam Islamic Center in Ellicott City that is just outside of Baltimore. He told a live stream audience that the attacks in Israel were a great victory for Islam and against the Jews. The attacks, he said, would shake the confidence of the Israeli people and cause them to ultimately lose the war. Well, that rhetoric matches that of other Muslim radicals around the world, who include Hamas itself, as you would imagine. Yes, indeed, Hamas spokesman Ghazi Hamad declared yesterday that the terror attacks that happened just about a month ago were not only good, but would continue until Israel is eventually destroyed. Quote, we must teach Israel a lesson. And we will do these attacks again and again. We must remove that country because it constitutes a security, military, and political catastrophe to Arabic and Islamic nations, and it must be finished. The existence of Israel is illogical, end quote. So those three pieces of news are the latest out of the Middle East this morning. Let me now pivot from facts and data to my brief analysis and opinion. Well, Speeches by politicians are normally a pretty boring thing, but this one that we're going to get from uh, Hezbollah's leader, Mr. Nasrallah, it is very, very important. And that is because it will play out not only in Israel, but here at home with all those Hezbollah sleeper cells. So more to come on its implications on Monday, but do put it on your radars, folks, because it is a big deal. Second, I want to remind us of something. Back on October 9th, when we first started talking about these terror attacks, I shared kind of a foundational question that we should think about as we're getting all these pieces of news. One simple question, and that is this, should Israel exist? Now, for many Muslims around the world, especially in Arab and Persian lands, the answer to that question is basically no. And that is why many of these folks will wage war or acts of terror for, well, forever until Israel is erased from existence, because those lands, in their minds, those lands belong to the Arabs or the Persians, the Muslim community. Indeed, that is what we are now getting confirmation of again this morning from the Hamas spokesman in this case. Very clearly, folks, we see the fundamental motivations of all the parties involved, right? Israel wants to exist. They think that they belong in the Holy Lands. Hamas, however, and its supporters do not want that to happen at all. And that, folks, is why there will likely never be a finish line to this fight, so long as Hamas or other Arab or Persian nations want Israel to just be eradicated. So as ever, as I shared with you about a month ago now, we should keep this in mind, that fundamental question, as we hear and see the news and all the arguments, we think about the challenge of ultimately solving this fight. More to come. With that, we turn to our second report of the morning. A very sober assessment, folks, coming to us from Ukraine's top military commander, saying that the war with Russia is a stalemate and that Moscow has key advantages that suggest that they will likely win this war without the introduction of some very serious cutting-edge Western weaponry. All of that is according to General Valery Zaluskny. He said that the war was static, attritional, much like World War I, and that those conditions benefited Russia, not Ukraine. 
Now, he explained that Putin has three advantages for this kind of conflict. First, their population is three times the size as his. They've got a lot more fighters, is the point. Second, Ukraine's economy, not in good shape. Russia's is in far better, even with all the sanctions. And third, Russia's technological advantages with their military weaponry, those are superior even with the current weapons that are being provided by the U.S. and our Western allies. Plus, this was interesting. The general expanded on this issue of greater population in Russia. He said that even if he could find additional Ukrainian men to put on the battlefield, he likely would not have the proper space to train them. And that's because Russia has a bunch of missiles that will blow up the training facilities. And that is why. His overall view of Ukraine's prospects as of this morning were pretty dim. Now, the general did say that if they got more of America's most advanced firepower, it was quite possible that Ukraine would win. But even then, he said it would be extraordinarily difficult because of Russia's three fundamental advantages. Now, as listeners know, this pretty sober assessment matches the brief that I gave you yesterday about Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, plus his military and his administration. We talked about the increasing difficulties they were having to recruit new men, plus all that uptick in corruption. So that is the very heavy news, ladies and gentlemen, coming to us from that very senior general in Ukraine. But as expected, frankly, listeners know from my counsel over the past year and a half, this is what I anticipated we would experience. And that's why, as of this morning, I'm not going to offer any more additional opinion or analysis other than just this little touch. Sometimes this country and its media ignores or underreports the actual realities on the ground in Ukraine. But we shouldn't ignore that stuff. Because again, D.C. is once more debating whether or not we should give Ukraine over 60 more billion dollars for more war material. But based on the comments this morning by that general, well, it might be wise to instead redouble our efforts for, well, an otherwise unhappy and bitter peace. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you so very much. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, an equal thanks. We'll be right back. Well, the world is just awful lately, isn't it? And sometimes it makes you just want to crawl into bed and scream into your mattress to make it all go away. Well, if you do, just make sure that your mattress is made by GhostBed. Seriously, folks, GhostBed makes the finest mattresses on the market today with craftsmanship and high-quality materials that you can feel as you fall asleep. And I would know. I had their Lux model and I bought it because I sleep hot and that thing helps keep me cool all night long for a great night's sleep. Now, people have asked, how does this technology work to cool you? I don't know. Magic? Maybe little elves in there somewhere with ice cubes? Probably. But it doesn't matter. Their mattresses, ladies and gentlemen, are top notch. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. They have a 101-day trial period plus free shipping and returns so you can try it out in the comfort of your own home. So, Go to ghostbed.com backslash right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. And you can explore all of their incredible models. And right now, they are giving my listeners 40% off their GhostBed purchases. But you got to use that code right. Again, go to ghostbed.com backslash right. W-R-I-G-H-T. And get yourself the good night's sleep that you deserve. Folks, if there were ever a product that you should consider, man, this is it. Jace Medical. They provide an emergency supply of prescriptions and antibiotics. And here's why you should consider them. 
As listeners know, I have spoken about how China and India control most of our prescription drugs, including antibiotics. Well, what happens if a war should break out over, say, Taiwan or maybe a pandemic again? Well, we all know what happens. Our supplies of critical products get interrupted, and that is not acceptable if your life depends on it. So that is why I am proud to tell you about JaceMedical.com. And here's how it works. You fill out a simple form at jasemedical.com. Then you speak with a board-certified physician. And within days, your order arrives at your home for emergency use. And I'll tell you, it, this is not for casual use, folks. Talk to your normal doctors for sniffles and such. This is for emergency use with potency lasting for years should the worst ever come. So, friends, go to jacemedical.com, enter promo code RIGHT, that is W-R-I-G-H-T, and you will get a discounted order. Again, that is promo code RIGHT at jasemedical.com. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards domestic news. And in this case, it has to do with quite literally domestic news. Over 20 U.S. grant-making foundations have announced a billion-dollar initiative to start or expand local news in America just ahead of the 2024 elections. So the foundations are universally affiliated with either the Democrat Party or leftist causes, but they have promised to, in this case, be apolitical or non-political, desiring to fix what they call the news deserts all throughout America. Indeed, as they highlighted when they announced this new program, over the past 20 years, over 2,000 local newspapers in this country have shut down. And that has left about 20% of American cities with no real local coverage. And that, at least based on their argument, is very bad. In no small part because these local media outlets, they don't just cover local news, but they, they help root out corruption and abuses of local power. So some investigative journalism on a local level that is needed now more than ever, these groups say. But their billion-dollar effort, whatever merits it might have, well, it's raising some concerns about bias and political agendas. So in the press release announcing this new initiative, they spoke of transforming and growing a community with equity. They also expressed concern about racial and gender gaps in America, most especially in the newsroom. So they would hire folks to fix that problem. Plus, critics point out the staff and the leaders of these 20-plus foundations. Let me give you an example. The CEO of the MacArthur Foundation is a fellow named John Palfrey. According to federal records, Mr. Palfrey is a longtime donor to Democrat politicians. There's also a series of organizations that uh, Mr. Palfrey and others like him are trying to involve in this initiative to ostensibly keep things neutral and pro-democracy, they say. Indeed, the main organization that they want to get involved in this initiative is called More Perfect. The CEO is a guy named John Bridgeland. But here again, Mr. John Bridgeland is a longtime Democrat donor and his organization called More Perfect that is co-chaired by folks who are virtually all Democrats and former Obama administration officials. And that helps explain the concerns that critics are having when Mr. Bridgeland and Mr. Palfrey justify their new initiative with words like these, quote, it's hard to have a democracy when you don't have good local news. When you lose credible news sources, misinformation and disinformation swoop in, end quote. 
So those are the facts and data on this billion-dollar effort to shape your local news. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion on what to make of this. So over the past few days, we've been talking about news and the challenge of operating as an independent voice versus a, a part of a corporate enterprise. Well, we now have another entrant into this fight over news and who controls the editorial policies, and that's charitable foundations. And they're not messing around. Upwards of $1 billion to create local content and define and minimize things like misinformation and disinformation, so they say. And look, theoretically, that's good, right? More local news, that's potentially a good thing. Holding local politicians to account, that's actually a great thing. But what recent history has shown us is that when we're talking about trying to define truth or misinformation or disinformation, such as we did during COVID, well, ultimately, we don't actually get the truth. We just get somebody else's spin of it. Plus, recent history has also taught us that the media isn't really holding all politicians to account, just some politicians. And in this case, we can probably guess which politicians will be protected or not. Of course, given the leftist political bias of the $1 billion that's paying the salaries for all those future local journalists. By the way, if you want to dig into this and explore it yourself, in other words, the bias of all these billion-dollar donors, I've included some links for paid subscribers and the transcripts for the 20-plus foundations. What I would recommend you do is you take the names of all the major staff and board members of these 20-plus foundations and type those names into a website called opensecrets.org. Right? That website is the national repository for, for who is given to different political parties or politicians. And as you do that and you explore the answers of who these folks are and who they give to and the potential bias, well, I think that when you do that, you're going to come to the same conclusion that I did. Right? Despite the claims of nonpartisanship or, you know, just to seek truth without fear or favor, as most journalists traditionally are supposed to do, well, this new billion-dollar initiative seems to be pretty darn partisan. Now, to be fair, that's not exactly shocking, is it? All right, back on July 3rd, I gave you that special report on fake news, and we went all the way back to the 1700s in this country, talking about how partisanship has long driven the nation's news cycle. But what's different about this one, what alarms me about this issue and this initiative, it's the scale, right? One billion dollars? And that creates the, well, a possibility of a national ecosystem of people and information, not a localized one, that ultimately benefits one political party and really one truth. And when you start talking about one truth, no misinformation and disinformation with the truth being defined by one political party, that is wildly dangerous. So that is why I'm going to be watching this. And I think it deserves our profound scrutiny as these folks start hiring journalists and start setting up or expanding newspapers, not just in some strange place, but your hometown and mine. Finally, this morning, an update to the important but very painful conversation that we started last Friday on the terrible shooting in Maine. For folks who have been watching this story, you know that the assailant was later found dead, a self-inflicted gunshot. But his family is saying this morning that they tried to warn local police and sheriff's departments that their son, their brother, was mentally ill and getting much worse. In fact, they said that his condition started last winter after a breakup with his girlfriend and he began acting erratically. In fact, they were so alarmed that they took away his guns a number of months ago, but apparently over time, 
There's some reporting that the family waffled a bit in their commitment, perhaps allowing him access to some weapons. Plus, apparently they were afraid of working with the police that, well, to have him committed, either because of the stigma or the heavy legal burdens to get him in. And that takes us to a related update from earlier this week when former President Donald Trump announced that he would work to rebuild a nationwide system of mental institutions for long-term commitment of those folks in need. He was especially focused on those homeless Americans in the midst of a mental crisis. Now, what's interesting about this call from Mr. Trump is that he's not alone. Key Democrats have also announced some degree of support for this same idea. For instance, New York City's mayor, Eric Adams, has called for fewer restrictions when having people committed to a facility, specifically the homeless. In fact, that bipartisan openness to having more mental institutions or an easier legal process to commit someone, there was a quiet bipartisan effort three years ago to do that. Indeed, as Mr. Trump's Domestic Policy Council advisor recently told the media outlet Axios, they had advanced conversations with unnamed Democrat mayors in California who were saying that they were absolutely inundated with mentally ill homeless people and they needed federal resources to deal with them compassionately. But unfortunately, COVID hit and that pushed this idea around homelessness and mental illness to the back burner. Now, as we discussed last Friday, this idea still remains very controversial to the point groups like the ACLU, they are releasing statements that they say they are continuing to be opposed to reopening these mental hospitals on a national scale. They argue that involuntarily committing people that fundamentally robs folks of their liberty and control over their bodies. And yet, if I can now pivot to my analysis and opinion, I think that this horrific shooting in Maine gives us a chance to start debating this again in America. It gives us a chance to destigmatize these facilities and these patients, most especially for when families have a loved one who is in a serious crisis, such that, well, once we debate it and talk about it, well, they know, these families know, that they have an option to not only protect their child or their brother in the case of Maine, but ultimately to protect the entire community. At any rate, folks, lots to reflect on as we face not only the challenges of people in crisis, but also the opportunities to get them help. Because I think that if we put politics aside, we can find some good solutions to this and help give people in desperate need a brand new start. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. No listener question today, just a wish for a wonderful weekend. As always, I will see you on Monday, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. <laughs>